Good morning. Scripture today is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over, over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He, went, he came back. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your word. We thank you for all the parts of it, those that are difficult, those that are immediately encouraging. We thank you that through it you reveal who you are, and we ask that you would bless us now in the hearing of your word and the message that you've laid on John's heart to, to give to us this week. We pray your blessing on him as he preaches today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I just want to say thank you, choir, for that beautiful chosen piece. Um, it, it's very appropriate, as you know, that we're looking at the story of Gethsemane. And those three lines, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to bear the cross. And Lord Jesus, teach us to die. How fitting. And thank you so much for the internationals for leading us in prayer. I was really moved as well. I mean, to hear a Ukrainian pray for Ukraine in Ukrainian language. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been working our way through this series on prayer, and today is the second last. So next week, we're going to conclude it with our final sermon, and that'll prepare us for what Ben has um, mentioned already to the season of Lent with the Ash Wednesday service. And we thought it would just be really appropriate for us to kind of sum up our time of uh, the sermon series on prayer with this Saturday prayer retreat. So it's from 9 to 12, and it's extended time, and if you're free, come and join us. We, we des specifically designed it so that it's relatively short, but yet there'll be nice spaces in there for us 
to kind of reflect and to enter into a time of prayer. We've invited a facilitator who is gifted in the area of prayer retreats to come and to lead us for that morning. So if you're available, come and join us. So as you know, over the past number of weeks, we have looked at some key passages in Scripture. Magnificent prayers of prophets like Habakkuk, Daniel, Jonah, and others, and saints. And our attempt is to really deepen our own personal prayer life and to grow as a community of prayer. Now, while many of the ones that we've looked at are beautiful and classic and powerful examples of prayer, uh, today uh, we are going to enter into a different realm. We are, I think, going to be treading on holy ground as we listen to the intimate prayer of the Son of God to his Father. For a moment at least, we're invited into this kind of a sacred mystery of the three-in-one triune Godhead. Now, it may be worth uh, saying at the beginning to uh, just comment that we can try to understand what is happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane, but there are going to be things that are too holy and too mysterious for us and probably should be left that way. So don't, we don't try to reduce what is happening in Gethsemane to our little finite minds. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, heaven, as it were, was opened briefly. And we're invited into that prayerful moment of Jesus to the Father in his probably most agonizing moment of his earthly life. There are things that are asked of Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane that only Jesus can do because he is the Son of God. However, because Jesus was so also fully human, there are things for us to ponder and consider this morning. A number of things that are happening in this short passage that we, uh, we read, so key, uh, but I can only highlight a few, and um, I'm going to keep our focus along the lines of this overarching theme of prayer and becoming a prayer community. So the very first thing that you might ask about this particular passage is the reference to the cup. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not I as, as I will, but as you will. What is the cup? And what is meant by the cup when Jesus said, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me? And why was Jesus in such agony to face it, or metaphorically speaking, to drink it? I mean, perhaps it would be natural to think, wasn't the Son of God in on this plan from the start? Like, why the drama? Why the anguish? So I think the answer lies in the meaning of the cup. Does the cup mean the impending arrest, the trial, the crucifixion and death? Is Jesus agonizing about what is about to happen? Or does a cup carry with it something even bigger, even something more profound? So on one level, I think the cup does include the physical suffering that Jesus is about to enter into. We are familiar with the story. We're reaching the climax of the unfolding drama of the Holy Week. And he's about to experience the mocking, the shame, the excruciating pain and the death on the cross, a method that was meant to maximize pain and shame and suffering. But the cup also carries with it 
a much deeper profound meaning. Just moments before, in Matthew 26, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and one of the crucial parts of the Lord's Supper, as you all know, is the cup. We just participated in the communion last Sunday. Now, in the tradition of Scripture, we see the symbol of cup in prophets like Jeremiah and later in Revelation by the Apostle John. In this symbol, or the word picture of the cup, through Scripture, the cup is filled with wine, and people and nations are made to drink from it. But this cup of wine represents God's appropriate and just and fair response to all that is wrong and evil in this world, what we call sin. In Jeremiah, the cup is called the cup of wrath and represents the fair and appropriate consequences, punishment for evil, injustice, violence, greed, oppression, pride, of both nations and individuals. God's appropriate and fair punishment for sin and evil, I want to suggest to you, is an important part of what we call justice. The other important part of justice being restoration. But God's appropriate punishment towards sin and violence is a key part of what we often mean by that word justice. Now, we may discuss... um, the whole idea of our judicial system, that those who are found guilty must pay some sort of a consequence. Um, We could discuss whether um, the penalty for justice and punishment is fair or not fair, but that's, you know, we could enter into a long-term, long kinds of discussion about that. But we have to acknowledge that it is an important part of justice. Now here's the key. Jesus is about to drink the cup of wrath of the entire human race, both his past, his present, and his future. His paths in the Old Testament times, his present for him, for his disciples, and his future, which means us. So at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was about to put on himself the punishment for all of the evil, violence, greed, oppression, and sin of the whole world on his shoulders, and he is about to take it to the cross. And so Jesus, in his fully human nature, even though Jesus was fully divine, knowing that this assignment was right from the beginning, is now staring this moment in the face, right at that moment. So in communion, the symbol of the cup, many of you have done this probably hundreds of times. Have you ever reflected on the power of the symbol of the cup? the cup of punishment for our sins that, who, that is rightfully deserving, rightfully appropriate and fair, that you and I are to drink of it, is now replaced with a cup, with the wine that represents the blood of Jesus Christ, who took our place. And now we can drink that cup, which is full of grace and full of mercy. That's the central truth of the Christian faith, that the cup of punishment that is rightfully ours for all the things that we have done, that we should drink, but Jesus, the Son of God, in his love for us, 
willingly and voluntarily drank the cup for us. And every time we do communion, we reenact that meaning. So the cup meant all of that. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it was this, the weight of God's righteous punishment for sin upon the world that we see Jesus agonizing over and sweating drops of blood. He was not spared human suffering from the Father. But instead, through prayer, Jesus entered into it and he submitted to the will of the Father for you, for me, and for the salvation of all of humanity. Hebrews 5, verses 78, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. That's the cup. Now, the second major theme, I think, in this passage um, that is un unmistakable, is really the, I think, the echoes and the similarities between Matthew 26 and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, you'll see the words like, Our Father, thy will be done. Do not lead us into temptation. And you see the echoes of that in the Gethsemane story in Matthew 26 as well. So in the early part of their discipleship, Jesus taught them the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And presumably the disciples would have prayed it regularly or frequently. Maybe like some of us were taught to do regularly as well. But in Matthew 26, Jesus is now demonstrating it in his life for the disciples. He took the 11 with him, and he brought Peter, James, and John even closer to him. It's as if Jesus is teaching them in real time, then, this is how you pray that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means not my will, but your will be done. So what do we mean by God's will, and how do we know what it is? When you have an important decision in front of you, how do you know what God's will is, and what our own will is, or what your will is? Are they always opposite? Are they always non-compatible? And those are big and good questions, which we need to carefully think through, which I think may be best done in classroom, or a setting with discussion and with concrete uh, examples and cases to reflect on. But the danger, I think, for many of us is that we think what we want is what God wants, or what God's will is, is what we want. It takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness to know what my will is or what I want and what God's will is. The first thing that we want to say here, I think, is that the God, God the Father is asking the Son uh, Jesus to voluntarily and willingly do for us in a whole different category than the kind of generally searching that you and I do in terms of our lives. 
what the father is asking of the son to do in Gethsemane is really qualitatively different uh, than what generally you and I are asked to do. But as I alluded to before, it is important that I think there are some things for us to consider. And it is this, and I'll just put it uh, as simply as I can. When we are presented with what we feel and are convicted of, that one particular direction, that unmistakable will of God, and if it is something that we don't particularly want to do, prayer is the means by which we can set aside our will for the will of God. Okay? When we are presented with what we strongly feel and are convicted of God's will in a particular direction or a course of action, and we don't really want to do that, prayer is the means by which we can learn to set aside our will and to do the will of God. But it's easier said than done, right? What does this look like? In many cases, in the journey of discipleship, when a crucial decision is coming up, a growing disciple prays, and she might ask God for leading or prompting. And I've witnessed this and seen many examples of a person's will over time, through prayer, with the support of trusted and mature Christian friends, transform her or his will to the will of God joyfully over time. Once in a while, I get the privilege of someone inviting me to pray with them. They'll say, I'm thinking about this. Would you pray with me and let me know what you sense God may be leading me towards? I have a very good friend who is, by education and career, an architect. And in Vancouver, it's a very, very good and lucrative career. He was in my small group or connection group in one of my previous churches. And his first step into seeking the will of God was to participate in a one-week global experience where they assemble a team of engineers and architects and draftsmen to go to parts of the world and to develop things like schools, hospitals, uh, residents, seminaries, Bible colleges, etc. And at the heart of his discipleship, he was asking God how he can use his education, his training, his skills for the larger kingdom of God. So my, my friend went on another short-term kind of global experience, and I got to watch, as it were, with front row seats, how his will gradually transformed to the will of God so that eventually, he eventually walked away from his architectural career here in Vancouver to do this kind of global work full time as what we might consider or traditionally call missionary. It was a beautiful, inspiring, and encouraging and a delightful journey of discipleship to see. We remain very, very good friends. And to this day, he still shares with me his adventures and all of the things that he gets to experience all over the world, and he said he would not trade this, you know, for all of the experiences over the past 10 plus years, for any nice house in Vancouver with an electric vehicle and a vacation home in Whistler. No way. Right? That's maybe one example of a gradual transformation of a person's will to the will of the Father. And through that process, prayer is the underlying engine that makes that transformation. I know of teachers 
who asked God the same similar questions. Where should I teach? If I had the choice to be the maximum effect for the kingdom of God, is there a particular area of town that no one wants to go to? You know? I know of doctors who went on similar journeys and intentionally chose to practice in remote places as their act of worship and service to God. So that's one discipleship path, a more of a slow, gradual transformation of a person's will to the will of God. And a major part of that is knowing God and knowing yourself and through prayer to be responsive to how God leads you. Uh, my close friend, um, in his journey, there were still critical moments along the way. I mean, it wasn't all easy. The day that he had to tender his resignation to the firm that he's working at, the decision to raise support, you know, bringing it to his spouse, and thinking about the implications for his children. But a follower of Jesus, once he or she knows the will of God, and through prayer, it gradually can transform into a time where we willfully and joyfully follow it, even if it is the path less chosen. There are also times where I've seen a disciple having to make a very critical and a timely decision, perhaps a crucial moment in an ongoing relationship, and things are reaching that important moment as the, th as the two of them think about the future. Uh, both of the individuals are followers of Jesus, so that's not the deciding factor in this particular uh, situation or case. But other factors may point to the, uh, the fact that this isn't really going to go uh, work out towards marriage and a family. And then after prayerful consideration, one of the individuals, emotionally torn, but believing that it is the leading and direction of God, makes the dif difficult decision to amicably end the relationship. It's challenging. Prayer is also the means by which our wills in those moments can be transformed into the will or the leading of God. There's a very um, profound verse at the end of John 21 where Jesus reinstates Peter at the beach scene. I think many of you are familiar with it. In which Jesus says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, Jesus said that to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. I have always found that to be quite a profound metaphor for uh, the discipleship journey. As a disciple matures, she and, or he undergoes a gradual transformation. So often in the first part of our discipleship journey, in the first half of our life, uh, we think we're in control. We want to do things for God. And then somewhere along the way, a shift happens. And you begin to see that the rest of discipleship is actually being led, often to places and situations where you don't want to go. So one of the overarching movements at the Holy Week, the Passion Week, what we alluded to earlier, is Jesus being led to where he doesn't want to go. But yet he does so to fulfill the will of the Father, and he does so voluntarily 
willingly in full submission to God's will. Now, there's so many particularities and individual factors that I think each situation in your situation would require a tremendous amount of wisdom and self-awareness and to think through all of the uh, possibilities, um, along with the uh, closest prayer, prayers of your friends and community. But again, um, Jesus prayed in the same way, saying, Father, if this cup cannot pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. And then lastly, I think something needs to be said of the disciples and their role in the praying community. In verses 40 to 42, um, the, the gospel tells us, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he went on away a second time and prayed. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So we left them and went away once more and prayed that third time, saying the same thing. Now disciples, some of whom professed that they were willing to die with Jesus, now cannot even stay awake with them for one hour to pray. And Jesus, I think, had to remind them of their confidence or overconfidence in themselves. Do you remember in Matthew 20, um, he said to his disciples, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to the two. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they said, we can. So the three disciples um, who were with Jesus in the glory of the mountain of transfiguration, who enjoyed that time of glory with God, who didn't really want to leave, now cannot keep watch with Jesus, even for one hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there are some things, I think, in Scripture that we learn from a positive example and some things that we learn from a negative example. And I take this to be a lesson from what not to do in terms of the disciples. But I try not to be too harsh because I know that if it was past 11 p.m., I probably would be the first one to fall asleep as well. More so, it isn't about the disciples. To me, this is the marvel of how God can still use Peter, James, and John, frail and weak as they were, to change the world. Jesus wanted the company of others in his most desperate hour, other people to pray with him, but they could not. Prayer for spiritual support, but also prayer so that the disciples will not fall into temptation, so that they would understand the will of God as well. And the temptation is to make things happen on their own effort. The temptation remains that if knowing God's will, we'll take matters into our own hands and try to circumvent God or to think that we are helping him in some way that, we hasn't, that he hasn't thought of, like Peter later taking out the sword. Prayer is the means by which the community can know the will of God together and not fall into temptation and encourage and support one another in those big important decisions of community life or personal life. It's important for us to develop those kind of prayer in community that kind of have self-corrects our sometimes self-focus or our narrow vision. So here we see Jesus in his most agonizing hour in his moment of suffering, 
come to the Father in prayer. And as he prayed this, he surrendered his will for God's will. Now let us pray as we think about this story for our lives. Really the question I think that God is posing for us this morning is would you be willing to say today, not my will, but yours? And would you be willing to commit yourself to a life of discipleship that reflects not I, but only through Christ in me? Father, help us to know Jesus more and more. Help us to know you more and more, Father. And help us to know your will for our lives, for our community, and for this world. That in whatever small way that we could be a part of, that we would willfully, joyfully, and voluntarily surrender what we want to what you want. Help us to be that kind of a disciple of Jesus and help us to be that kind of a community here at First Baptist Church. And we humbly ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.